If you would, take your Bibles, go to the book of Romans, chapter number 12. I was thinking while, while they were singing, He Leadeth Me, and I was thinking about the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and the message that I have for you this morning is a message that I have been thinking about and, um, and uh, I, I would say kind of casually working on for quite some time. I wasn't supposed to be here today. And um, just through a series of circumstances uh, out of our control, uh, we're here. And so uh, I was just uh, praying last night and then this morning that perhaps maybe the timing of everything, that God has something providential and that perhaps maybe this message is for this day and that God has a special plan for it. I know that there is nothing special about us, but there is something special about our Savior and I do know this, that he is, he is sovereign, and he does have a providential plan. And while we are just a little teeny tiny part of what God is doing, that doesn't minimize the fact that God looks down and um, he loves each and every one of us, and he wants each and every one of us to be a light that shines in a very dark world. In the book of Romans, chapter number 12, Look with me at one verse, verse number 21, where the Scripture says, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. I want to speak this morning on the subject of overcoming the evil around us. Let's ask the Lord's blessings on this time together. Lord, thank you that you've already met with us today. Thank you that you lead us. Thank you, Lord, for the sweet, precious old hymns that we were able to sing as a congregation. And Lord, I know that you desire our worship, you desire our praise, you desire our service, you desire our faithfulness and loyalty to you. Lord, we ask that you would take this message, bless it to each and every uh, heart of every listener, We pray, God, that you just might put your hand upon it and that this message would make a difference in hearts and lives. And, God, we need you to do something in our land. And, Lord, evil seems to be prevailing all around us. God, you've been merciful to us so far. And, Lord, we're seeing a lot of things happening that uh, certainly makes me believe that uh, the withdrawing of your hand, we are suffering uh, the result. We are reaping what we've sown So, God, we need you to do a work, Lord. We need you to turn this thing around. Lord, our children and our grandchildren need the grace of God. And so help us now during this time. Lord, I pray that if anyone under the sound of our voice does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, Lord, something might be said that would touch their heart and draw them to a right relationship with you. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For any of you that are at least remotely familiar with current events, you're aware of the fact that this past week, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. She chose to remain on, um, on her uh, position on the Supreme Court in spite of her debilitating battle with cancer. Uh, no doubt that many would think that with her health crisis and her situation that she would have stepped down quite some time ago for sake of effectiveness as a Supreme Court judge, but she chose not to do so. In her dying days, she made it clear that the president should wait until after the election to nominate a replacement. I've read uh, uh, numerous articles, or excuse me, just headlines, I should say, of uh, how that every liberal voice in our country is echoing her wishes. Whether it be a celebrity, whether it be a politician, they are many are continuing to echo her wishes. We need to wait until after the election to nominate a Supreme Court uh, justice. Now, she mentioned this very emphatically, and it, you know, it, the question that needs to be asked is often forgotten. Are Supreme Court judges political or are they legal? They're supposed to be legal and not political, but sadly that has changed in our nation. She was paramount in the decision in the year 2000 to strike down a Nebraska law 
that banned partial birth abortions, which I believe is a great law. I mean, I believe that abortion is wrong and sinful and it should be illegal nationwide. But this was just a law to ban partial birth abortions, meaning that if a woman is getting ready to give birth to a child, uh, according to the Supreme Court Justice Ruth Ginsburg, she has the right to kill that baby even up to the point of delivery. Now listen, I'm not, my intention here is not to disrespect the memory of the dead. I'm simply saying that while many of the liberals are echoing her sentiment, wait until after the election to appoint a successor, I'm also finding that people from all different parties, all different persuasions are all chiming in and praising her for being a hero in our nation. I'm certainly not saying that everything that she did was contrary to the Bible. I'm simply stating the facts that she was paramount in that decision in 2000 to strike down that Nebraska law. The Washington Post headline just the other day read this, and I quote, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and this is their headline, this is what they're putting out there, champion of LGBTQ rights on the bench dies at 87. I saw that LGBTQ, and I thought, well, I, you know, I've been hearing what LGBT is, lesbian, gay, uh, bisexual and transgender, I thought, what's the Q? I looked it up. It stands for questioning. Maybe it could be the letter C for confused, people that don't know what they are. I, I thought when's, it's just a matter of time until it's going to be LGBTQA. Letter A for alternating. I can be a woman today, I can be a man tomorrow, and just I get to choose what I feel like being on any given day. The ruling in 2015 to require all states to allow same-sex marriage was a 5-4 to four vote. Folks, I think that we can all understand that the appointment of this next Supreme Court justice, based on what the Supreme Court is doing to the moral and social issues in our land, I would say it's pretty important. Don't you think it's uncanny that in the, I mean, in the past six months, as this election is coming up, uh, all can you imagine all of the things that have happened that are that do nothing more than just stir up controversy now I, I will admit that our president our current president has done a pretty good job of keeping controversy going poking the bear if you will i, I think i see smiles i think everybody knows that's his personality one thing you can say he's not a coward but you know what It is uncanny, just controversy after controversy after controversy, whether it is the liberals or whether it is the devil behind the details, something is going on to try to draw our president into a controversy that basically he's going to hang himself before November. We've even seen a softer side of him at times, a compassionate side, things that are going on in current events where, you know, two years ago, he would have been weighing in pretty hard and heavy, and now he's being pretty nice and polite. You know why that is? He's intelligent enough to know that um, he can certainly shoot himself in both feet. I think that he realizes that um, they're out to get him in ways that probably no other former president has ever been. Now, if you're uncomfortable with me talking about politics, let me assure you that we are well within our constitutional rights in everything that I have said in this service this morning. And I can assure you that everything that I'm going to be saying in today's message 
is well within our constitutional rights and certainly within the confines of our 501c3 nonprofit status. So please don't be worrying about the things that I'm saying. If you're worrying about, well, pastor, you're going to stir up controversy. You know what? I, I have no desire to stir up controversy. I am a peace-loving man. But I want and desire, and I prayed this morning, I said, God, of all of my faults and failures, and I recognize that they are many, the one thing that I never, ever want to be guilty of is compromising the whole counsel of this book right here. There are a lot of preachers that don't necessarily tell you something that's not true, but they conveniently omit many things that would be uncomfortable or unsavory. I never want to be guilty of that by the grace of God. We need to pray for every preacher, and I'll say more about this uh, later on in the message. Now, it's interesting that Justice Stephen Breyer is 82 years old, and he was appointed by President Clinton. And so this upcoming Supreme Court nominee and whoever gets in, whether it's a liberal-minded judge or a conservative-minded judge, folks, this merits some pulpit time here today so that God's people will pray because human lives as well as the favor and grace of God are largely dependent upon what's going to happen the remainder of 2020. So, overcoming evil around us. The Bible says here, I remind you, Romans 12, 21, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Certainly every believer regardless of what denomination or persuasion that they come from, must be painfully aware that there is much evil around us. Dishonesty, guile, anger, violence, injustice, perversion, divorce, unwed pregnancies, abortion, and the list could go on and on and on. We are painfully aware, and I realize that you don't need your pastor to tell you what's going on around us. Do you ever feel like the voice of righteousness is going unheard? I'm a preacher. I feel that way frequently. I feel like we've got the message of hope. We've got the answers to the problems of our country. Why can't people see it? Why is our voice not being heard? Do you ever feel frustrated like there's just nothing that we can do to overcome all the evil around us? The Bible tells us how to overcome evil. The answer is not in a protest, a riot, a march, a tweet, or even a vote. The answer is, thus saith the Lord, overcome evil with good. What does it mean to overcome? To overcome is to conquer to vanquish, to subdue, to surmount, to get the better of. In short, to win. I don't know about you, but I've played sports most of my life. I prefer winning to losing. I, I know there are some, I've been around some men that they're even worse than I am. I mean, I've been around some people, good men, that hate to lose so bad that in the moment of competition, you better be careful, they may kill you. And they're good men. They love God and they love you. But in the moment, <laughs> doesn't always bring out the best. I'm not that competitive. But I do like to win and I do hate to lose. Whenever I have played any sport, it has always been with the intention to do my very best to win or to help my team win. But when I lose, you know what? I can't remember any time that I've ever lost a game that I balled like a little baby. And you know, I see, I see boys and girls these days when they lose, it's so important that they cry. I hope I didn't hit a nerve with anyone here today. You know what? It's just a game. Enjoy it. Compete. Now listen, I don't like this soccer mom mentality where we don't keep score either. Are you kidding me? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. 
But we want to be overcomers. But all the evil around us, we think, what can we do? It just doesn't seem like we can do anything to overcome the evil around us. How? How can we overcome? Well, number one, we've got to identify the source of evil. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You know the source of evil. It's got to be Nancy Pelosi, right? I mean, there's always got to be a face for evil. It used to be among conservatives, Hillary Clinton, and she's kind of gone off the scene. She still chimes in every now and then, but now it's Nancy Pelosi. And, and you know, when she's gone, it'll be somebody else. What is the source of evil? Before we can overcome, we've got to identify what that source is. If perchance there is a, a, a liberal listener today, somewhere out there in, in uh, Facebook land, I will say this, that Donald Trump is not the source of evil either. This is not a responsible generation. You know what this generation is? This is a victim generation. We have to blame someone for everything going on that we are disgruntled or discontent with. It's got to be somebody's fault. Now, sadly, we, in this, today's generation, and all of this has been brewing and leading up to it, this just didn't happen, but anyone who is in a position of authority is typically at the top of the list to be blamed for every victim that's ever happened. It could be a police officer, obviously they're at the top of the list today. It could be a principal, it could be a a president, it could be a pastor, Anyone. It could be a parent. Why did they all start with P? I don't know. But they seem, I guess maybe that's a bad evil letter. We should get rid of the letter P out of our alphabet. I protest it. This is a victim generation that has to blame someone. Until we identify the source of evil, we will never be able to overcome that evil. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 17, this is God speaking. This is the first thing that God says to the human race. He says to the man, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That is the word of God. And I know what some liberal-minded people think, well, God must have lied because as soon as Adam bit into that fruit, he didn't drop over dead. God didn't tell a lie. God just sees things in a much bigger picture than what we do. Adam indeed died. He died spiritually. In Genesis 3, verse number 5, Satan now is speaking to man. And he says, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. What Satan said to Adam and Eve was accurate. I hesitate to use the word true, because it wasn't true. It was accurate. But for something to be true, it's not just what you're saying, but it's making sure that you're saying the things behind the scene, that you're making an accurate representation. We've been talking about honesty on Wednesday night, and you know, to be honest is more than just being accurate in what you say. It's taking responsibility. And so God is warning man from something that would harm him, and the devil is warning man from God who's trying to warn man from something that's going to harm him. The devil's basically saying, look, I'm, I'm for you, but God's not. And if you think about the gist of every one of the devil's temptations, there's something in there of that mindset that he's for you and God's against you. God's just being a bully and he's trying to keep you from something that would bring you joy and pleasure. But God, in his integrity, God is honest, and so God tells us the whole story to protect us, but the devil only tells us what we need to know to cause us, to tempt us to go against God. 
in Genesis 3, verse number 6, says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. You know what the Apostle Paul said about this narrative? He said that the woman was deceived. He said the man wasn't deceived, the woman was. Therefore, the Apostle Paul would probably not be allowed to preach in modern time. He wouldn't have much of a a congregation. You know, we read the Bible and we, we quote the Apostle Paul. We think, oh, he was a great Christian. You know, the average Christian today would not go and listen to the Apostle Paul preach. He would be considered a sexist. He said, the woman is the weaker vessel. He said, I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man. It's the word of God, folks. And you're quiet. And understandably so. Because this message of truth is somewhat forbidden in our culture. And we become afraid. I'm afraid, well, what's, how's this going to cost me? Is this going to cause us some conflict? Are we, are we doing something? No, we're, we're just saying what the Word of God says. And it says that she did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And this is where our problem lies. The world, the flesh, and the devil all are in an unholy alliance of evil. Ever since this sin took place in the Garden of Eden, man has been listening to the devil. Man has been attracted to the lusts of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. John warns us that all that is in the world, that if we love the world, then the love of the Father is not in us. And then we've got our own stinking rotten nature, our flesh, if you will. Just like the book of James says that every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And so this is where the heart and the root of all of humanity's problems are. Man is a sinner. Now listen, there's a solution for sin, and praise the Lord for that. I received the solution as a five-year-old boy. I received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Now, being saved didn't make me perfect. It didn't make me sinless. But I'll tell you what it did do. It brought a personal relationship with Jesus Christ into my life. And it brought something that I thank God for called the convicting power of the Holy Spirit of God. When I commit a sin today... The Holy Spirit does not leave me be. He he bugs me. He bothers me until I come to a place where I get on my knees and I bow my head and I say, God, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And I confess my sins and I restore that fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's the life of a Christian. One preacher said, getting saved doesn't make you sinless, but it ought to make you sin less. Why? Because there's been a change of heart. And I thank God for the work that God did in my heart and in my life. Paul understood that conflict. He said, for to will, he said, I "I have a desire to do that which is right, but I also have this old nature. I, I feel like I've got sin dwelling in me. And so the more that we yield ourselves to God, the more that we can live and walk righteously, and the more that we resist, and follow after sin, we become servants and we become bond slaves to sin. But praise the Lord, the cross of Calvary gives us the power to be made free. The Constitution of the United States of America gives citizens certain, certain rights and certain privileges, but that is not the source of man's freedom. The source of our freedom We've got to be made free from sin before we can ever govern ourselves and enjoy the Constitution that our founding fathers wrote for us. 
That's why my primary loyalty is always going to be to Jesus and not to this country. I love this country. And I'm always going to honor the flag and for all the the lives that were given and sacrificed to give us the freedom. I would not want to do anything to dishonor their sacrifice and their memory. I love this country. But if I've got to choose between my country and my Savior, I'm going to pick my Savior and you ought to as well. He's the one that loved me and died. He's the one that saved me from my sin. If you're saved, He deserves our utmost allegiance and loyalty. So we've got to identify the source of evil. Secondly, we've got to place blame where it belongs. I'm going to get a little bit personal here uh, in this second point. Because if we don't place the blame where it truly belongs, then we're never going to get out of this spiraling downturn that we're seeing going on in America today. In Isaiah 56 and verse number 10, Isaiah is prophesying in a time of apostasy, much like what we see in our country today. And he said, speaking of the preachers, his watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. You know what a barking dog's good for? I know what some of you are thinking. In the middle of the night, nothing. I I get frustrated at at our dog. Sometimes it'll be barking out in the backyard, and we're just sure that there's a prowler out there. And I open the door, and I see the dog barking, and I look, and I go, "What, what, what, what is it? And then I look around, and it's like, it's nothing. So, you know, she turns around and comes and gets a drink of water on the porch. I don't know what she saw. I don't know what she smelled. She was barking at something, but it's like, it's nothing. Now, can I go back to my recliner? (laughs) But a dog is supposed to be a faithful watchdog. You know what? I would put up with those false alarms just to know that I've got a dog around that has better senses than I do, and maybe if there is a prowler... If there is something wrong, that dog's going to bark and it's going to wake me up and alert me. Isaiah is saying that God's watchmen, that preachers need to be willing to bark, need to be willing to warn. And the preachers in Isaiah's day were all dumb dogs that cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yea, they are greedy dogs which can never have enough. Watch this, and they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his gain from his quarter. It says here that they're ignorant. They cannot bark. They're just preaching things that would produce some gain. Do you know that the preachers of America today have instilled a mentality in the average Christian that believes that a message like I'm preaching today is unchristlike, or to criticize or to judge any sin or wicked behavior is unchristlike? I guarantee you, if you went back a hundred years, you would be hard pressed to find any Christian that would believe that way. In modern times, the entire concept of Christianity has morphed into something that is very unbiblical. It's a Jesus that isn't the Jesus that I read about here in the Scripture. Hey, I can pick and choose a verse here and a verse there, and I can talk about it for 45 minutes, and I can present to you a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the whole Bible. And that's exactly what's going on. They're, they're interested in their own gain. Let me give you now the net worth of the top eight preachers in America. Now listen, before I show you this, I want you to know that I don't have any problem with any man of God or preacher having God's blessings upon them. I have no problem with them having more money than I've got. 
Some of them have large ministries and some of them have a lot of stress and a lot of pressure. Some of them have done a lot of work and publishing books and traveling and so forth. I have no problem with people having wealth. But you know what? When somebody has wealth and popularity, they have a voice. And the problem that I have is not with the money, but I have a problem with the voice. How can we have the problems in our country today? Same-sex marriage, abortion, and the list could go on and on and on. And the top eight influential preachers in America are saying, let me say the top seven, have said very little, if anything at all, about the problems that are in our nation. Jesus wouldn't have been silent on the things that are going on in America today. I know John the Baptist wouldn't have been silent. You know, John the Baptist was Herod's favorite preacher. Herod loved him until he pointed out his sin. All of a sudden, Herod wasn't too popular. He got thrown in prison. Ultimately, he lost his head. You know the story. How far does America have to drift before men of God are going to start standing up and saying, Thus saith the Lord. You know, the more someone has, the more they stand to lose. Amen? Number one, Kenneth Copeland. His net worth, personal net worth, is $760 million. Number two, Pat Robertson. Personal net worth, $100 million. Number three, Benny Hinn, personal net worth, $42 million. Number four, everybody's favorite, Joel Osteen, $40 million. And I would have to say, and counting. <laughs> I guarantee you, give me a few years and he's going to be closer to the top of the list. Number five, Creflo Dollar, $27 million. Number six, a little confusing for some, even myself, uh, Billy Graham. And this list was compiled a couple of years ago when Reverend Graham was still alive. Now let me pause lest I offend anyone. I'm not saying everyone on this list is of the same caliper. I got saved at a Billy Graham Evangelistic Association um uh, crusade. And so I thank God I've been to the Billy Graham library probably 15, 20 times, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it every time. I have other couple other things that I could say, but I won't for sake of time. Number seven, Rick Warren. He is the author of the Purpose Driven Church, which has been in my Conviction has destroyed so many good churches in America and turned them from conservative, Bible-believing, singing the old hymns to a church that is basically turned into a rock concert in the name of Jesus. $25 million. And then number eight, Joyce Meyer. Started out as a woman preacher, and now she doesn't even claim to be a preacher. She says she's a motivational speaker. She's worth $8 million, which really that doesn't seem like very much uh, in this list, but she does have um, headquarters that are worth $20 million that are outfitted with $5.7 million worth of furniture, one of which is a $23,000 commode. I have a gut feeling none of this top eight are very missions-minded. Would you think? The average pastor salary in the state of North Carolina in 2020 is $93,450 a year. Some of you are like, whoa, <laughs> I think I'll be a preacher. <laughs> While the average Baptist pastor salary is $47,772. Might want to consider being something besides a Baptist if you're in it for the money. Now, with all of these, as I've said before, their net worth is not the problem. I just believe that the net worth is a symptom of the problem. And the problem is what Isaiah spelled out there 
is that they are not telling the whole truth. They're only telling the things that are savory, that people want to hear, and uh, because you're not going to... Listen, John the Baptist would not have sold very many books in 2020. He would not have hosted very many seminars. And, you know, some of these preachers in the name of ministry actually charge anywhere from 25 to $50 a ticket to go and hear them speak. I've been thinking about just charging you five. <laughs> time I get done today, you might not even think I'm worth that. <laughs> Second Peter chapter number two. You know, I'm not basing this... Uh, this um, premise on just one verse out of Isaiah. Second Peter chapter number 2, verse number 1, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Hey, we've already talked about that. Speaking the whole counsel of God makes a person unchristlike or judgmental or hateful in modern culture. It's because of the preachers, folks. It's not because of CNN and Hollywood. It's because of the preachers. Makes the way of truth evil spoken of. And through covetous shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Peter was Peter didn't pull any punches with them. I guarantee you the Apostle Peter was a whole lot rougher on this crowd than what I've been here this morning. And then he goes on to say in verse number 18, For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, and boy, that is the common theme of the modern contemporary preacher, grace, 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 liberty, 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 and they just say it over and over and over again. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. And so we're looking at what the Scripture says of placing the blame where the blame belongs. Listen, the evil around us, it's a darkness that is setting in in this nation. America is has become a very dark place. What is darkness? Darkness is just simply the absence of light. Darkness doesn't, doesn't encroach. It just simply takes over when light is gone. I've enjoyed, um, one thing I have enjoyed about, um, about COVID is, uh, when we pray on, uh, Saturday night, we meet over in the chapel. And so the auditorium is shut down so that we don't have to clean it and disinfect it before Sunday morning. And so because I'm the pastor, I kind of rank has privilege. I come and I pray here in the auditorium and I, I contaminate it. I come up here toward the front, and it's dark in this auditorium. And so when I first come in, it's like it's dark and I can't see anything. And I like to walk around and talk to the Lord while I'm praying. I, I, that's just, I do my best praying, just kind of pacing and walking, and it, it, it helps me for some reason. Well, I don't bu- like bumping my shin on the pews. And so what I do, rather than turning a light on, I do like the darkness to a certain degree because it, it blocks out every distraction. It helps me to focus on prayer and, and instead of thinking about everything else. But what I do is I take my cell phone and I turn on the flashlight and I set it right up here on the platform and I shine it toward the ceiling. And that light shines just enough light on those ceiling tiles to where I couldn't read, but I can see enough in this entire auditorium that I can walk all the way around it and I know exactly where the pews are and so forth. It doesn't take that much light to shine 
and to make, to make things visible in a dark world. Darkness, the absence of light. Isaiah 5, verse number 20. The Bible says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. John 3, verse 19. Jesus said, And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. We see here that it's not all on the preachers. Some of it is because men love darkness rather than light. What happened? A faithful pastor who's shining the light, people who love darkness sat in the pew and it's like, oh man, that's, that's uncomfortable. I just, I'm not getting fed. And so they go and they find some place that where they can be in their blindness and darkness and not have that bright light shining in their eyes. And so they leave good churches and they go to liberal contemporary churches that are telling, giving you a good feel good, but never telling you the whole counsel of God. Hey, how about Jeremiah 5 verse number 31 says the prophets prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. And what will ye do in the end thereof? Hey, brothers and sisters, what are we going to do in the end thereof? It's not all on the preachers. We all need to put the blame where the blame belongs, and we all need to take personal responsibility for the lives that we're living. And so number three, my last point, what can we do? What can we do? Up to this point, I haven't offered you a whole lot of hope. I've just basically been exposing the problem, telling it like it is, but what can we do? The first thing that I want to remind all of us of is, first of all, control your thoughts, feelings, and actions. Now, that's a, that's a concept that modern psychology, which pulpits are full of in America today, says you can't control your feelings. But the Bible teaches very much on the contrary. The Bible says, a man that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down and without walls. We are vulnerable to the enemy. And so our spirit, our feelings, and our emotions need to be ruled over. You can't always necessarily make yourself stop feeling a certain way, but you can say, look, I am going to be a thinker and not just a feeler. Modern Christianity says feel, feel, feel. But Bible Christianity says think, think, think. Believe, believe, believe. Obey, 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 and the feelings will follow. But most people today, they want the feeling first, and then I'll follow. Philippians chapter number 4, verse number 7, says, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, what does Paul say? He says, do. Do them. Do something about it. And the God of peace shall be with you. Hey, within this passage of Scripture... We find a simple concept of controlling our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions. We need to start doing the things that God says we're supposed to do. A proverb says that if we'll commit our works unto the Lord, our thoughts will be established. If God's people would just get so busy serving God and witnessing to the lost and filling our hearts and minds with the Word of God and spending time in prayer... Being faithful to God, probably some of our emotional struggles and battles, we may still have them, but 
they'll get a whole lot smaller because we don't have time to even be thinking about how we feel. Thinking about those things, it's the replacement idea. If you got negative thoughts and critical thoughts and discontent thoughts and they just seem to be swirling around in your mind, replace them. Start meditating. Start thinking about good, honest, positive things that are true from the Word of God. Start thinking about Jesus Christ. You know, you cannot think about Calvary and think about yourself. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful concept. We are taught in our culture to express rather than control. Someone said, well, I've, you know, I've got to be true to myself. And so if I feel a certain way, then I need to be a certain way or I'm not being true to myself. That is not a biblical concept. I, I would say that Cain was pretty true to himself, wouldn't you? When he killed his brother? I would say there are a lot of things that we dare not ever be true to ourselves because we feel it, think it, and we desire it. Never a good thing. Next thing, how do we make a difference? How do we overcome? Keep preaching and praying. Keep preaching and praying. You say, I'm not a preacher. Everyone should be preaching the truth. Everybody should be telling whoever they can what the Word of God says. Isaiah chapter 6, this is the great missionary text where Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. And, and, and the Lord said, whom shall we send? Who will go for us? And you know what Isaiah said. He said, here am I, Lord, send me. And so God says, okay, I'm going to send you. And this is the rest of the story. Verse number 8, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who shall go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. You know what God's saying? God's saying to Isaiah, your job is not to fix them. Your job is to blind them. Preacher, what do I do with that? Do you know what? When Moses stood before Pharaoh, you know what Moses told Pharaoh? He told Pharaoh exactly what God told him to tell him. And you know what the end result was? It hardened Pharaoh's heart. I think that's probably one of the, maybe the biggest factors with modern preachers today is that everybody feels like that they have to have this great giant, lots of money, lots of popularity, lots of influence ministry. But listen, it's the little churches across this land, and it's been this way for over 200 years. That's where the salt and light is. Somehow in the last hundred years, we thought that it's the big, the big mega ministries that are making the biggest difference. I submit to you that that is absolutely not the case. Isaiah's ministry was not necessarily to win them. His ministry was to be a light to shine and to tell them what God said to tell them. And then notice what Isaiah said. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man and the land be utterly desolate. Hey, listen. Brothers and sisters, we have got to learn how to separate ourselves and stop looking at the results to determine whether or not God's in it. I know this is a dynamic change in mentality. What have we said for years, for decades? We have looked at ministries that have crowds and have big buildings and they just keep growing and we think, oh, God's blessed them. That's not always the case. In fact, in most cases, it's not the case. We've got to stop looking at the results to try to determine whether God's in it or not. And we've got to start looking at the book, at the Bible. Is the message that's being preached, is it faithful to the Scripture? Is it being lived? 
Is the love of Christ, is it present with the truth of Christ? You can't separate those two. They both go together. 1 Samuel chapter number 2, verse number 1. Brother Sharp gave a devotion yesterday at Street Ministry, and he alluded to this passage of Scripture as Hannah was praying, and she said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. And notice this next phrase. If you think about this, what, what she's saying. She said, my mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. What does she mean by my mouth is enlarged? Is she saying that I have a big mouth? Most preachers get accused of having a big mouth. You, you know what I believe she's saying? Here's little Hannah who has been, she has been suffering year after year. She's been childless. I mean, the thing that she wants more dearly than anything else in life is to have a child. And she, year after year after year, she doesn't have a child. And she keeps coming to the temple. And finally, she's praying. And she's in such an agony that she's down there praying. And her mouth's moving. But she doesn't even have the strength to get any voice out of her mouth. You ever prayed like that before? I've had times where I was so heavy burdened that I didn't even want to hear the sound of my own voice in my ears. And so I would talk to God, but I didn't want, I didn't want my presence with God to be interrupted by my own voice. Hannah was, had lived year after year thinking that she was the loser and that the other wife, uh, name, help me, Penina, that Penina was the winner. Penina's got the results. Penina's got the blessings of God, right? So she must be the one that's right with God. And Hannah's going through life thinking that, you know what? God's not hearing me. I don't even have a voice. Listen, righteous, true, God-fearing, God-loving Christians today, we feel like we don't have a voice. How do we overcome? Listen, Hannah just kept on praying, and that's what we've got to do. We've got to keep preaching, and we've got to keep praying, and maybe the Lord will show up and, in, and enlarge our mouth and give us a voice. Amen? I would love to see a national evangelist rise up in America like some of them in the past, like Sam Jones, like Gypsy Smith. Like Billy Sunday. I mean, one of these men of God that aren't going to be chiming in all of this modern psychobabble, feel good, tell people what they want to hear, success story stuff. I mean, someone that will come up and say, thus saith the Lord. A John the Baptist, if you will. I would to God that God would raise up that man that would be that bold and that God-loving that would be unafraid and unashamed to tell it like it is and have a godly lifestyle behind him to back it up. Matthew 5.16, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Then he said also in verse 13, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? Hey, I know, folks, that this morning's message has been a 25-pound bag of rock salt. I understand that. And it's not the message that I enjoy preaching, but it's the message that is needed. It is so needed in churches and among Christians. It's needed in America If the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing. I don't want to be a good for nothing preacher. I don't want to be a good for nothing Christian. I want to be salt and light in my community. And I want to do everything I can that God enables me to do to make a difference. How about you? You want to make a difference? Well, who am I? I'm nobody. I don't have a voice. Listen, God may enlarge your voice. So keep on preaching and keep on praying. Amen? And then my last point under what can we do? Stop living by feelings. Live according to doctrine. You know, in the book of Revelation, there were 
there were some tribulation saints that God talks about. And they were beheaded. They were martyred by the Antichrist. And you know what the Scripture says? It says they overcame him. They overcame the Antichrist by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. You know, both of those are doctrinal concepts. The blood of the Lamb isn't some magical cantation, oh, I plead the blood of the Lamb, I plead the blood of the Lamb. No, it is a doctrine. We have to believe it and understand what that blood represents. It's not some magical words that we say. So we've got to stop living by feelings and we've got to start living according to doctrine. 1 John chapter number 4. I'm almost done, folks. John chap, 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 4 says, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We've got to quit looking at the entertainment value, the feelings, and the success. And we've got to start looking at the whole counsel of God. We've got to start living by doctrine. That is the only hope of us overcoming the evil around us. In conclusion, one last thought. Add this to your list. We've talked about, I believe, some very helpful, practical things. Control your thoughts, feelings, and actions. We've talked about keep preaching and praying. Stop living by feelings and live according to doctrine. But the last one that I want to talk to you about is worshiping God. You know, the evil around us. Evil is not just like the devil working. Sometimes it can manifest itself in natural disasters. Job, Job, his entire economy went in the tank. He lost all of his cattle in one single day. I mean, his stock market crashed, no pun intended. He, he, he lost his children. I mean, you talk about family problems, grieving, emotionally speaking, Job was in a mess. And you could, we know the, the, behind the scenes that the devil is behind it. So Job is living in a time where evil is just prevailing all around him. How did Job overcome that evil? It says in Job 1 verse 20 that Job arose, rent his mantle, shaved his head, fell down upon the ground, and worshipped. And he said, naked came I. This wasn't some kind of kumbaya session. All right. This was an attitude. This was real worship. And by the way, real worship is an attitude of the heart. It's not always an emotional expression. It's not something that's always ecstatic. All right. He, he bowed and he, he humbled himself and he worshiped and said, naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. In Job's worship, at that moment, he turned his eyes away from the evil around him. And he got his eyes totally focused on God. And when he did that, it created great humility This wasn't a worship session in which Job got any emotional benefit from it. This was worship that was for God and for God alone, not for Job. Folks, if we're going to overcome the evil around us, we have got to learn and we've got to practice biblical worshiping of God. Jesus said that the Father seeks those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Get back to the Bible. Get back to biblical worship. Put these things into practice in your daily life. Pray for the preachers of America. 
just as we should pray for our president and for our leaders and for all people that have authority so that we can live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And remember that there is never going to be any utopia in America until Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning on his, the throne of his father David in Jerusalem. He's going to make everything right. Be responsible. Vote in November. But above all, be faithful and loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible says, how we can overcome all of the evil that is around us.